Good morning. My name is Andy. I'm also an elder here at North Shore Church. And this morning I will be reading scripture and praying on our behalf. This morning's scripture is 2 Corinthians 12, and I'll be reading 5 through 10. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should boast, wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Dear Lord, you are holy, worthy of our praise. Your name is to be lifted up above all names. You have proven yourself as all-powerful, all-knowing. Even death was no match for your strength. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, we were offered eternal life with you in heaven. Praise be your name forever. We thank you for all that we have, for life, for salvation through Jesus for the blessings of fellowship in this body here at North Shore. God, we thank you for your patience with us. Help us to learn your ways and give you the glory for all that we do. Lord, please guide us along as we try to share the truth of your Son, as we share the Gospel. Help us to live our lives so that we bring others to Christ. We ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to work through us, to guide us and to empower our ministries and this church. Lord, bring revival to your church, and in so doing, bless this country of ours again. Cause all of us to truly know that we are a country under God, and that we prosper or we fail according to your will. Lord, please bless and protect all of the students returning to class this year. We pray for safety in the classrooms, and we pray for teaching that honors you. God, we pray for your healing touch on any and all that are sick within our congregation. Lord, we ask your heal healing of their bodies and their spirits. Lord, and we also this morning ask that you would give Scott boldness and confidence as he brings your word to us this morning. Let his words be empowered by your Holy Spirit. Let your spirit open our hearts and enlighten us to the truth of your gospel. And we ask this through Jesus, your Son. Amen. <laughs> and uh, Brian isn't feeling well, and he contacted me late in the week and asked that if I would be able to preach for him. So. I uh, haven't had a lot of time with this message, um, but it is a message that Brian had preached a few years ago, 
and so I w made it my own and made some changes to it. And um, you know, we're talking about future grace. Andy led a, a, a Sunday school this morning, and it's about it's a John Piper video that we're watching called about grace. And I have had to call upon that grace <laughs> this week. And um, so. As Andy talked about, um, the Apostle Paul was dealing with something that he called a thorn in the flesh. He says that it was a messenger of Satan to harass him, and it was meant to keep him from becoming conceited. Being handpicked by Jesus for ministry would naturally cause anyone to become puffed up without some sort of means to keep grounded or to control the inflation of our head a bit. The reason I bring this up is because Paul's faith in Jesus is his obedience to his mission it never faltered, even though the most tremendous torment that he ever could experience. Scripture tells us that Paul cried out to the Lord three times to take the thorn from him, but Jesus chose not to. What Jesus did say to Paul, though, was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9, as Andy just uh, read a minute ago. Hearing this must have flipped a switch. In Paul's, because in his response wasn't like anything other than mine would have been. I would have been most likely to complain a bit, followed by reasoning why my plan was better. No, Paul responds like a champ. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, that's, how to, that's exactly how you should respond in the face of adversity and discomfort. That's what the true faith and obedience looks like. No matter what we encounter, God's grace is sufficient for everything. When we are at our weakest, he is at his most perfect. This morning we're going to deep dive into the flood narrative and take a look at Noah, much earlier in the timeline than the Apostle Paul. We will see how the grace that he received by faith through obedience helped carve his legacy under the backdrop of the most awesome and devastating destruction this planet has ever experienced. But first, let's pray and ask for help from our Father before we get going too much further. Father God, we admit that we need you desperately in all things. Thank you for your Son, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word so that we may know you better. Please help us to better understand it and better apply it in our lives. We admit that we can do nothing on our own that's good. You are the originator and the perfecter of all that is good. So we ask you, Lord Jesus, to send your Holy Spirit here today to do just that. Begin and perfect a good work in us today. Amen. The story of Noah is most often told as a child story. The picture that is commonly used is this cute-looking little ark that is bursting at the seams with all kinds of fluffy, furry animals. You'll see a pair of giraffes, a pair of hippos, a pair of elephants, because everybody loves elephants, a pair of monkeys probably getting into mischief somehow, and of course, there would be Noah and all his family waving as a few raindrops come down, and they're looking so happy to be there. But here's the thing. The reality of what the ark looked like was that it was more like a beefed-up bunker that happened to be floating on water than it was a boat. 
It had to be able to take a beating because of all the banging around it and the abuse that it would take. It would experience many days of torrential rains and subterranean explosions. The reality of the flood is much more and much more raw and dark than the cute little bubbly pictures you see in Sunday school. To say that this event was epic is a complete gross understatement. When Kim and I went to see the Ark Encounter in Kentucky just a few months ago, it really brought to light how amazing this Ark was. And it really brought to light the exact thing that must have happened according to how it was built and how it would have had to have been built and how they would have put all those animals on there in the smell, how the smell must have been. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. It was the storm to define all storms. Scripture says that the windows of the heavens opened up and the fountains of the great deep burst forth. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Not the kind of rain that we experience here in Menominee, Michigan. This was rain that was being dumped from heaven in, by buckets. We complain when it rains for two day, a day and a half even. We complain about how much water there is and on the roads there's, there's signs that say flooding. This was on a whole nother level. It would have caused much local, localized flooding all over the earth, even before the main event would submerge everything. I'm sure that many mudslides and collapsing of hillsides and devastating valleys would have also contributed to the death and destruction that took place. Now that's just the rain. Scripture also talks about the, the fountains from the great deep that burst forth. These fountains must have been some sort of subterranean pockets of water that just needed to get squeezed out. Some mechanism to cause pressure to be behind these pockets of water was needed because it was said to have burst forth. The bursting forth is what fascinates me. What exactly it was, we will never probably know on this side of heaven. But it makes sense now why the ark was constructed more like a tank than a cruise ship. The closest thing we have today to experiencing something like that is probably a, a volcanic eruption of some sort, or maybe a geyser similar to what you see in Yellowstone. Now behind all the awe and amazement about details of the flood, there is something very sobering that we have to remember. Many, many people were killed by drowning in all sorts of other unpleasant ways. This was God's judgment on man for all the evil and wickedness that was going on. This highlights just how serious things have gotten. It's tough to say what the population was at that time, but I've read from a few uh, sources, and it could have been anywhere from 2 billion to 5 billion people on earth at that time. But here's the thing. Only eight people survived. Imagine what kind of news story that would have been if one of them was a newscaster. The wickedness got so bad that God said that he regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. What a difficult pill to swallow, isn't it? But it's not all doom and gloom. God's purpose will always be accomplished, and Noah and the flood will teach us that. This morning we're going to be focusing on three lessons that the history of this flood can teach us. The first lesson is that man is entirely sinful and we deserve judgment. The second is that faith through obedience is what God desires from us, even now today. And the third lesson is despite what man does, God's will shall be done. 
So I'm going to attempt to tackle these one by one with the help of the Holy Spirit. We will all see how each of these lessons show us just how much we are in need of Jesus. The first lesson, this is the fact that man is entirely sinful and we deserve judgment. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I think that needs repeating again because it says it was only evil continually. That's pretty bad. How can that be? What in the world was going on at the time that all the thoughts would be evil all the time? This is what the text says in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways upon the earth. So I think, to say, I think that it's safe to say that there was corruption going on. The word corrupt is used three times here. And to what was making it corrupt? That's a whole other discussion on its own. One conclusion we can make, though, is that when all the thoughts are evil, then our actions necessarily become evil as well. So much so that God said once that he was sorry that he had made them, and that he regretted that he had made them. Ouch. I have to admit that those are really difficult proclamations to read. But surely since Noah was found to be blameless and righteous, and he and his family were the only ones to make it through the flood, wouldn't that mean that since we are all descendants, Noah would be free from our heart's intentions being evil continually? Wouldn't we be free from the same sinful desires as those perished in the flood? This, of course, is a crazy question. Also, we will see when God responds to Noah after the flood, he indicates that man's intentions are still evil. Noah and his family and all of the animals get off the ark, and this is what scripture tells us in Genesis 8, verse 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and, and offered burnt offerings to the, on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God indicates that man's heart is still evil. He doesn't say it is evil continually, but he does say it is evil from our youth. So that's a little bit of an improvement. Not really. The reality that the covenant was incomplete, it was missing something almost as if intentionally. Man's intervene. There was still a necessary bridge that needed to connect a sinful man to a holy God. And we know that that bridge was Jesus. He took the penalty for our sin, which was death, and defeated it. Only perfection could pay the price. Jesus is that perfection. The second lesson, faith through obedience, is what God desires from us. So why did Noah get a free pass? What was it about Noah that got him a boat and nobody else? Wasn't he crazy? He was the one building a huge boat in the middle of nowhere for over a hundred years. What made him so special? The answer we'll see is in two parts. First it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So this must mean that Noah was doing something that nobody else was doing, because why would anybody else find favor in the eyes of the Lord? 
The second part of the answer is in verse 9, Genesis 6, verse 9. It says, Noah walked with God. That was the difference. This all seems kind of simple, really, when you say it out loud, but it's the execution that isn't always easy and can trip us up. When we walk with God and do what he wants us to do, we find favor with him. Simple to say, not so easy to accomplish. That's why we need Jesus daily. Now the rest of humanity was walking in evil and their own wickedness, not quite the same as walking with God. Noah chose to walk with God. Okay, so this walking with God is a good thing. And we know that it helps you find favor with God. So what does it mean to walk with God? I think it can be defined as simple as walking with God means that you are in a close relationship with him. There is time spent together, time spent in his word, an intimacy that has occurred. A bond has formed. So if we revisit uh, Noah's neighbors, we see that the evil had filled their hearts and minds so much and all the time that there wasn't any time or space left for a walk with God. Their desires were probably all for themselves and completely devoid of anything to do with their creator. Even though God had given them 120 years of warning to get their program together, they still ignored him. To walk with God means that you put your trust in him. One thing interesting to note is that Noah is not recorded as speaking, but only once during the entire flood narrative. What happens, though, is that Noah is basically there listening to God's instructions, and when the time is appropriate, he snaps to attention and says, Yes, sir. That is basically what's going on, although not exactly. What the text says is this, Noah did everything as God had commanded him, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah doesn't have much of a speaking role in this narrative, and he really doesn't need one. In fact, if he did, it probably would counter to his ability to be faithful and obedient because it would be more about him and less about what God wanted him to do. Being slow to speak and quick to listen has all sorts of benefits. Just ask our wives. The writer of this scripture is indicating that God is the boss here. Noah is his subordinate. The subordinate does what the boss says to do without question. Noah had faith in his boss and he obeyed him. That was that. Another attribute of Noah that contributed to his faith through obedience was the fact that he was noted as blameless and righteous. Verse 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. But here's the thing. Being blameless does not mean that you're perfect. Being righteous does not mean that you still don't sin. But what it does mean is that you are not persisting in your sin. It means that you acknowledge and confess your sins and humbly repent before a gracious and forgiving God. I think it's reasonable to assume that while Noah was walking with God, he was also fully aware of his faults and would make it a practice to repent to his sins to God. Another very important thing to remember is that God doesn't wish anyone to perish. He wants all of us to walk with him despite what we've done on the way, or the way that we've acted. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 highlights this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repeat, re, reach repentance. 
It took 120 years for Noah to build the ark. The fact alone, this fact alone, makes it reasonable to say that God gave more than ample uh, opportunity for others to do as Noah did, to put their faith in God and to begin walking with him. But instead, they would just mock him and criticize him. According to his neighbor, Noah had to be the biggest fool of all time. After all, he was building a huge boat in the middle of nowhere, not even close to a body of water that could accommodate it. What would we do if we didn't know this story in the Bible and somebody from Daggett, Michigan was building this huge ark? It would be all over the news and it would be criticized because what is this guy doing? Why would he be... I mean, we live right next to Lake Michigan, so it would make a tiny bit more sense, but at the same time, who are we to judge? Because I believe that a lot of us, I know myself too, would be like, this guy is nuts. I don't know, you know, what is he doing? And he was telling everyone that it would rain. No, it was. But what was rain? It never rained before. Nobody even knew what it was. So basically, Noah was inventing words and making crazy talk. Even with all this talk and slander, did everything just as God commanded him. And through it all, he proved his faith by the way of his obedience. This is why God showed grace on him and his family. This is why God said Noah was righteous and blameless. Now, we've already discussed the fact that a righteous and blameless person is not perfect. But let's talk about what they are. They are someone that hates sin so much that they are diligently and enthusiastically trying to get rid of it. When we hate something, it drives us, drives change in us from within. It makes us want to go a different route because it doesn't make sense to continue in something that we truly hate. We only continue in something that we hate because in reality, there is part of us that still wants it, still likes it, still has to have it. Hate for our sin should always drive us to take action. The first action needs to be in the direction of the arms of our Savior as we are walking with God. His arms are the only logical place for us to be. The third lesson that we can take away from this flood narrative is despite what man does, God's will shall be done. So, what is his will? What's God's plan for us and for the earth? It has the same, it's the same since the beginning of time. Shortly after creating Eve, God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. God told Noah the same thing. In fact, he repeated it. And when he repeated it, he actually told Noah to increase greatly on the earth. So we know that the increase of his creation is top priority for God. One of the reasons behind increasing greatly is that men and women were created in God's image. And as such, we reflect his glory, especially when we are living by faith through obedience. And when there is more of us to reflect his glory, God himself gets that glory. This command is easy to say, but not necessarily easy to accomplish. The new reality of being the only ones on the planet had to be scary at first, I'm sure, for Noah and his family. Just try to imagine what it would be like for them for a minute. There's only eight of them. They went from being ridiculed by everyone for 120 years for building this ark, this humongous boat, nowhere near a body of water, big enough to accommodate it. And once they got off, they experienced the most fantastic, terrifying event ever occurred past creation itself all with while being occupied or cooped up in a floating barn as the ground is exploding all around them with, mountain, with massive fountains of water and torrential rains pounding down on top of them for over a month straight. Then to finally be able to go outside and it hits them. 
We are it. There is literally no one else around anywhere on this entire planet. That had to have been very stressful to say the very least. To ease some of that stress, God introduced three new instructions. These instructions were given to help Noah and all of his descendants with their quest to increase greatly and multiply on the earth because they found, they found out there were certain dangers and difficulties about accomplishing it. The first new instruction had to do with the fact that animals were now food and they would be afraid of man. Prior to the flood, everyone was a vegetarian. This instruction was a very practical one because in the early days after coming out of the ark, I'm sure it was a bit crazy with all the animals now having to go and find their new ter territory in this unchartered landscape. Remember that two of every animal was on the ark. That means there were two cute little bunnies and koalas as well as wolves and tigers and gorillas and grizzly bears, even some polar bears and all sorts of other things that may may not have been agreeable once they get hungry. So giving the animals a fear of man would certainly help Noah and his family out, especially early on. The second instruction given to man was the right to take the life of another man and when there was a murder. Murder obviously runs counter to the mission of increasing greatly upon the earth. So it's logical to have a means to try to eliminate or at least reduce its occurrence. Genesis 5, gen, excuse me, Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6 says, And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds, sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Before the flood, it was God's responsibility to deal with those that murdered someone. Now God was giving that responsibility to man. The third new instruction was about the covenant that God had made with Noah. He says in Genesis 9 verse 11, I establish my covenant with you <coughs> that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy all the earth. And God goes on to Noah and his family, a sign of, of a covenant. This sign is the rainbow and will remind God whenever he sees it, the covenant that he made with Noah. God says in Genesis 9 verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. In post-flood, man's endeavor to greatly increase across the earth was always the risk of natural disasters, disease, and death. But at least they would not have to worry about it being wiped out by a flood again. So let's review the three lessons that we hopefully pulled out of this flood narrative. The first lesson was that man is entirely sinful and that sin deserves judgment. Even though Noah was blameless and that he found favor with God, it didn't mean that he was sinless. The covenant that God made with him was incomplete, so it was in need of a savior. The covenant did the job to hold off God's wrath so that we would not be wiped out by a flood again. 
But it did nothing for the chasm that our sins have made between us and God. We know that the Savior is Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our hope in the presence of a holy God one day. The second lesson was that faith through obedience is what God desires from each of us. Noah was obedient and did all that God had commanded of him. Even in the face of extreme ridicule and criticism, he continued to do what God had commanded him. The third lesson was to remind us that despite what man does, despite all the craziness we try to pull off, God's will, his plan, shall always be done no matter what. Remember, God is sovereign, so that means that he is in control of all things from now until forever. If you are here today and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, it's not too late to come and talk to one of our elders or to make a time to talk with Pastor Duncan. We would love to talk to you about this, for such the time is this. As we do our closing prayer, <clears throat> I, I want to read um, and close with 1 Peter First Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to this great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Heavenly Father, God, we, just, we thank you so much, Lord, for uh, the lessons that you teach us. Um, God, we ask that you, you come before us today and, and uh, you just shower upon us with your blessings every day. Help us to, to be in, in, in all of your truth and purity, Lord, to every day be renewed by what you're what you say that you do for us. Your, your grace is new every day to us, and we thank you for that grace. Without it, we can do nothing. Father God, as we conclude here with the message, we just ask that you, you bless each and every one of us today and that you give us safe travels home. And no matter what next week looks like, Lord, that we can put our faith in you. Thank you for being the God of all gods. Thank you for Jesus. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.